Right. Okay, good morning, everyone. So um, for, for those of you that don't know me, my name is, is Jeremy. I'm one of the leaders here at Real Life Church. Uh, married to, to Becky, I've got three children. Um, I think, yeah, one's waving at me from the back. Um, one is in youth and one has gone off with children. And um, my wife has left me for the weekend. She's gone off with a, a bunch of ladies from our life group. So it's been a fun one. Um, and I'd just like to, number one, say thank you to, to my kids for, for helping me out over the weekend by not causing any major events or uh, intercontinental disturbances. Um, so, yeah, thanks for that. Um, in 1993, many, many years ago, in 1993, I traveled with the South African surfing, junior surfing team to Bali for the World Gromit Champs. It was the first South African sporting team to be allowed back into Indonesia after the apartheid government fell. And it was a great privilege for, for me to be part of that team. Not only was it a privilege to represent my country, but it was the very first time that I've, I'd traveled on a plane, um, which, which seems very sort of old-fashioned these days. Um, we got to see Singapore, which was culturally such a, a massively different experience for me, coming from a, a small coastal town in Port Elizabeth and having to deal with this cosmopolitan center with sort of like a, a rich cultural mix um, and not to mention the heat in the place. We got to experience all of these cultures. And I know this won't mean much to many of you, but um, even for Ryan, if, if he wants to benefit from this, we, we got to travel in an outrigger through a reef pass and then cruise all the way past Bingen and Padang Padang and land at Uluwatu to go for a surf. And, and these were, were surfing spots along the Bali coast, which, which had become legendary in my mind. I was watching surfing videos that had been bootlegged and recorded four or five times on VHS, and we were watching these spots with these Australian surfers riding perfect waves in, in paradise. And... And we got to go there. It was legendary stuff. It was out of reach. It was like a dream come true for me. Um, it was amazing. But also, for those of you that have been to Bali in particular, in Indonesia, it, it was crazy. Like, I mean, crazy, crazy, insane. The traffic was nuts. The nightlife was off the charts. The locals were trying to sell you absolutely everything, including massages and magic mushrooms, on the beach while you were sitting watching the surfing competition. So it was insane. I'd, I'd become a Christian the year before. I'd become a Christian in uh, 1992, uh, my first year studying graphic design, and I was so amped on Jesus. I was buzzing. And the thing was, I went to Bali, and there were so many opportunities for me to get smashed, sleep around, get high, and even though all of the guys that I went with were pretty much doing all of that stuff, I remember not feeling at all tempted by it. Not at all. Um, Byron Howarth, Mark Jackson, David Pfaff, you know some of the guys, Ryan, it was It was insane. But I don't remember feeling tempted at all. Two years later, 
a friend of mine, somebody else I knew from Port Elizabeth, went to Indonesia. He went to Bali. His name was Danny, and he never came back. They found him in a hotel room, um, and they'd suspected that he'd suffered a reaction of sorts to a magic mushroom. Uh, I haven't recently, but I used to think about Danny a lot. You know, I also used to think about the fact that it could have been me in that hotel room. It could have been me. I was in the same environment. I had the same type of friends. I had the same temptations. And I wondered what made him take that mushroom. Why was he drawn in when I wasn't? And I think when I was young and and perhaps a little bit arrogant, I would have said it was just self-discipline. But with the privilege of hindsight and and a bit of growing in my faith, I now realize that it had nothing to do with my ability to discipline myself. I remember a couple of years earlier how badly disciplined I myself was. It wasn't down to my own righteousness. Actually, it was because I felt completely satisfied in Christ. I didn't feel like something was missing. And so nothing that promised me peace or promised me joy or fulfillment or escape worked. It was like trying to literally sell snow to, a snowman, to, to, a, to an Eskimo. I had all the snow I needed. Why would I buy any more? And I think this is a a fundamental part of of Paul's message to to the church, not just here in Philippians, but across his writings. He he teaches the church and he teaches us that, that godliness with contentment is great gain. And that's not just a pithy statement. That contentment gives you an inner strength which nothing else can. And so with that in mind, we're going to look at the text. And I know we've titled it Joy and Temptation, but if you think I'm going to be talking to you about how to resist a chocolate cake so that you don't have too many sins on your, um, your, your diet, or, or men, if, I'm, if you think I'm going to, to tell you how to stop buying the latest piece of tech, even though you don't need it, that's not where I'm going with this. It's not that kind of temptation. I guess the root is exactly the same, but we're not going to get into legalism and lists of all the things that you should be avoiding to be a good person. We're going to look at the fundamental cause that uh, draws us and distracts us from our primary calling. That's the big temptation, and that's the one that most people struggle with. So let's read the text. We're going to be in Philippians chapter 2, starting at verse 12, and we're going to read through to verse 30. It will be up on the board, or you can pull out your phones with Bibles on, or the paper versions as well. Those are also very good. They work well. So here Paul carries on. Therefore, my beloved As you've always obeyed, so now, not only as in my presence, but much more in my absence, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. For it is God who works in you, both to will 
and to work for His good pleasure. Do all things without grumbling or questioning, that you may be blameless and innocent, children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation, among whom you shine as lights in the world, holding fast to the word of life, so that in the day of Christ I may be proud that I did not run in vain or labor in vain. Even if I am to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. Likewise, you also should be glad and rejoice with me. I hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you soon, so that I too may be cheered by the news of you, for I have no one like him who will be genuinely concerned for your welfare. For they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with the Father he has served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come also. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier, and your messenger and minister to my need. For he has been longing for you all and has been distressed because you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill, near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may, re- may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. Okay, very quickly, let's just remember the context here before we, we dive into the text itself. It's, it's really important. I started this piece of text with the word therefore, um, and whenever you read a section like that, you need to remind yourself what it's there for. You need to check what was written immediately before, because it's in the light of that that this passage is properly understood. So first, the book, it was written by Paul, and it was brought to the Philippian church by Epaphroditus, who we've just mentioned, who was one of their own, that they sent to Paul while he was in um, a, while he was arrested in Rome to look after him, to care for him, and to minister to him. And they cared for Paul deeply. In a sense, they owed their salvation to him. Um, and it turns out, through the, the look at the language in the book, that he cares deeply for them. It's all over the content of, of the letter, the personal greetings, the updates, the desire to visit them personally, um, sending his best co-worker in, in Timothy to them. And what Paul is doing in this letter is he's encouraging the Philippians. They're evidently dealing with some type of resistance or persecution. And honestly, we don't know what the exact nature of that persecution is. 
It's not made clear, and we shouldn't surmise. But they're evidently experiencing some type of resistance. And Paul is going to great pain to use his own experience of persecution. He's going to great pain to use the suffering of Epaphroditus and others to emphasize with them and to encourage them to persevere. That's the purpose of the book. The theme of the book is joy. And by now, hopefully, I think you'll have um, figured out that Paul does not equate joy with happiness. Um, there's a great song that I, I used to sing that happy, happy is a yuppie word. Um, it's something that depends on circumstances. Joy is something that's far deeper and far more resilient um, and doesn't necessarily always mean you have a smile on your face, but there's a deeply seated sense of satisfaction, a contentment that comes from a rich and living relationship with, with Jesus Christ. It's the kind of feeling that you'd hope you'd get if your bank account was full, or you'd hope you'd get if your house was big and always warm. Um, it's that kind of feeling, the feeling you'd imagine would be provided by all sorts of external things that we never seem to get. It's a feeling that you get when you have that living, rich relationship with Jesus Christ. It's a sense of abandonment of heart and a peace that comes, as Paul says, from considering all things as rubbish when compared to the surpassing glory of knowing Him. So Paul has just encouraged them in the preceding passage to pursue a humility that is modeled on the example of Jesus Himself. He did not take up his rights as God, and he took on the form of a slave so as to serve his people, um, who quite honestly did not deserve it. He reminds them that Jesus was glorified, resurrected, and seated at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning with all authority over all things, and that this was given to him because he humbled himself and served all of creation in his servant life and his excruciating death. Now, those, those last words of that passage, those last words that say that every knee and every one, everything will bow to Jesus and confess that he is Lord in the context of opposed to Caesar, he is Lord, not Caesar, is what the therefore in our passage is referring to. He's about to encourage them to not give in to the pressure to conform to the pattern of their society because the day is coming when all will be required to make the same confession. You will be making it willingly, Philippian church, but those that oppose you now will be compelled to make the same confession. You with joy and them with dread, unless they too come to know Him as Lord in this life. And it's on that that Paul bases this appeal to the Philippians. As Christ was humbled, be humble. As Christ was glorified, so will you be glorified. You have 
nothing to lose. Absolutely nothing to lose. So please, Paul says to them, please do not bow the knee to external pressure. And do not become petty in your arguments with each other. And do not, do not compromise the unity that you have in your brotherhood and fellowship. Paul reminds them that their life is now not about themselves, but about God's glory and the salvation of others. And their perseverance and their steadiness and their unity are not so much an opposition to the world, but a testimony of a reality that can only be seen in the light of the gospel. That is the point of, um, I don't know if it, if it would be up just yet, but that's the point of him going back to the Old Testament and, and playing a little word game with, with the Old Testament where, where he says to them that, that they are to be lights to the world. A lot of the, 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 the messaging around enemies and opposition makes it sound like they needed to stand up against their opposition. But he uses another phrase where he says, hold fast to the word and be a light. And in a sense, that's not about standing against the opposition. It's about standing firm on what is true so that you can be a light which illuminates the darkness and makes it possible for those that cannot see to suddenly see the way forward, to see truth for the first time. So for Paul, what is at stake here is not that they get to the end of their lives as strong Christians. It's what is at stake is the gospel and the gospel being preached in a sound, clear way in a community which is opposed to the very message being preached because he believes that that gospel will bring light, which will open eyes and allow those that oppose, as Paul used to, to become those that become family, friends, and are rescued. So I guess... What you're really kind of thinking is, okay, that's great, Jeremy, but what was this temptation that the, the Philippians were facing? And there's definitely something in there. Paul doesn't say to them things like, do all things without grumbling or questioning, unless Epaphroditus has come back to him, and he's been telling him about what life is like in Philippi at the moment, and he says, look, there's some stuff going on that you maybe need to know about. I mean, things are good. Um, the church is, is strong, but th- there's, there's some people that are posturing, perhaps. There's um, some people that are competing for position. Um, there's people that are arguing with each other over minor positions. Um, so there's grumbling. There's questioning. And Paul says to them, don't do that. Do not do that. But it's not clear what the issue is. It seems like, as I say, discontent has entered into the church in some way, and it's of primary concern to Paul. Maybe it is because of this constant opposition that they're wearing thin. I mean, you know what it's like when you get to Friday evening or, or Saturday morning. You know what I mean? You're not, you're not quite the nice person that you were earlier on in the week. Not because you've become more evil, but because you've become tired, uh, and so you can sometimes get on each other's nerves, um, and you may react in, 
in a different way. So if you, you turn that into a situation where they've been under constant pressure for a very long time, maybe they're just wearing thin. Maybe it's because of some of the early theological controversies that were circulating at the time. And I'm not going to get into those in great depth, but there were a couple of controversies that were, were, were circulating, and a number of churches argued about those. The, book, the, the letters to the Corinthians and the, letters to the, Ephes- the letter to the Ephesians um, are more explicit about particular issues, um, but not in, not in Philippians. Philippians is more about a general sense of unity and strength and friendship. So this is where Paul references the grumbling Israelites in the desert in his exhortation to to them. And he pleads, he pleads with the Philippians not to be like them. But at the same time, he shows them, and this is where he does his little word play, he shows them that they are different to them. They are different to the grumbling Israelites. He knows they will hold fast and that they will be able to boast with him on the day of the Lord. So he takes the crooked and twisted generation which referred to the Israelites in the Old Testament and uses that to refer to the community that they live in and he is encouraging them to, 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 to live in a contrasting way to them, to stand out And there's so many interesting theological images in the text which I'd love to go into, um, and they reflect Paul's Old Testament-saturated mind, Um, and it would be brilliant to go into that, but not today. Today, I just wanted to highlight two further phrases that Paul uses in this passage, and I think it's important that we, we talk about them because I think they can cause confusion for Christians. Um, they're also important because they refer to the theme of temptation. So the first word is obeyed. I've just highlighted it there in, in verse 12. Obeyed. Now, obedience, in Paul's view, is not blind, begrudging obedience to a long set of rules. He's come out of that kind of structure. He understands what Um, Judaism had become in his day, and that's not the kind of obedience he is requesting of the Philippians or of the church in general. More so, it's it's a completely willful and joyful surrender to Christ's will, because you love him so much. And that's amazing in some ways, and in other ways, I know a lot of us will go, that's so unhelpful. Just give me a list of things I should do and shouldn't do, and I'd be able to do that. But when you say something like, well, I need to submit myself to Christ's will and abandon my heart to what he's called me to do, you're not telling me what I should be doing. And the truth is, Paul's quite good at not telling individuals in the church what they should or shouldn't be doing. He's very good at telling them to speak to Christ about that and to follow what he guides them with. The second is, is this phrase, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. We as Christians believe that you're saved once and you're saved for all time, that Christ is all-powerful and um, he can't make mistakes, so when he rescues you, he rescues you you're saved. We call that the assurance of salvation. We're assured of our salvation. And when the Holy Spirit 
comes upon us, that is a sign, a guarantee of our salvation when we meet Him face to face one day. So what does it mean when He says, work out your own salvation with fear and trembling? That sounds like a very different kind of salvation. And I don't believe for a minute that Paul imagines that they have lost their salvation or or are able to lose their salvation. This phrase is in the context of that first word, obeying, and it's in the context of Christ's example of humility, and we need to consider it in that context. And so, the idea here is, um, is more about you having a, being respectfully mindful of your, your daily conduct in light of your salvation. So, because you're saved, be respectful and mindful of the fact that you're saved and what that means for your conduct on a daily basis. He's reminding them of Jesus as their example of conduct. Now, with that in mind, let's have a a quick look at this thing called temptation. What is the nature of temptation? So, um, I mean, if we're talking about the cake, or we're talking about the, the mobile phone, or the uh, extra special tech gadget that we absolutely have to have, I see we've got an iPhone XS now, and I've seen a hint at an XR coming out. So they've just launched one, and there's one to come. So now that the one to come is coming, maybe the one that is already here will be a little bit cheaper. So we might have more of a reason to get the thing that we don't actually need anyway. Um, temptation's an interesting thing. For those of you that are, are used to conversations around strategy or theories of change, um, it's made clear that you can't drive any kind of change for any significant period of time unless there's enough dissatisfaction with the way things are at the moment. If you're working with a group of people that are fairly happy with where they are, you're not going to change anything. And temptation works on a very similar principle. It essentially makes a proposition that you possibly don't have what you need, and then it offers you something which will meet that need, apparently. The problem with temptation is as soon as you go after the thing that meets your need, you find that your need isn't met, and you continue looking for more and more and more. The premise is that you um, need to feel some level of dissatisfaction with your current state, else the temptation won't work. And you know what? God knows that. If He said to you, avoid temptation, you need to know that He will give you everything you need to avoid temptation. And He will not get sucked into legalistic discussions about what is temptation and what isn't, and give you a massive book on how to avoid gambling, sex, drugs, alcohol, corruption, stealing, um, you name it. The list goes on and on and on. What he will do is he'll redirect your eyes from the external perimeter of the circle of God's grace to the center where he is. And he'll remind you to stop being like children, going to the edge of the playing field and seeing if you can kick the ball just over the outline and if the referee will see it. And say, come and play in the middle of the field with me where it's safe. He'll focus you on your calling. You exist for three things, he'll say to you. You exist to minister to God. 
to minister to your Christian family, and to minister to the world. And then he'll remind you that you do not live this salvation life alone. And we in the Western world need to be reminded of that daily. We do not live the salvation life alone. And that you need to be working out your salvation in the context of Christian community. That means we talk about death. That means we talk about humility. That means we talk about the places where we feel vulnerable with our brothers and sisters, which are things that we just don't do in Western society. At, at, at best, it's impolite. At worst, we feel like we're going to die when we open our mouths to talk about those things. But that's what Paul encourages, and that's what God encourages. This is your family. We need to be open and honest with each other. Posturing, posing, telling everyone that everything is perfect all day long doesn't help you live a Christian life. We need to be open, honest, and vulnerable with each other. And in the light of that, we need to just quickly look at what Paul offers the Philippians to help them persevere. Because at the end of the day, their temptation isn't about chocolate cake or iPhones. Their temptation is to, to in some way, dumb down their public testimony, to try and relieve the pressure that they're experiencing. I'd imagine that it would be something like, you know, um, we'll, we'll stay Christians, we love Jesus, but can we just stop saying that Jesus is Lord? Because every time we say Jesus is Lord, someone comes back to us and says, tells us that's a crime, that Caesar is Lord. And if you don't stop saying Jesus is Lord to the exclusion of Caesar, you're going to end up in real trouble. So can't we just stop saying that? And Paul's saying, no, don't. That is the core of your testimony, and that is what you're here for. If your salvation is just about you and Jesus and maybe one day going to heaven, Paul might have just said, yeah, you know what? As long as you persevere till the end and you, you continue calling yourself a Christian and you pray every day um, and you're nice to your wife, then fine. Stop saying Jesus is Lord. It would be much easier, but that's not what the Christian life is about. And so he says to them, no. You may end up in jail. You may end up in worse trouble. But do not stop talking about Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. <clears throat> but while he does that, he does a few other things. Number one, he reminds them of their relationship with him. He reminds them of their relationship with Epaphroditus, and that they sent Epaphroditus to look after Paul, to care for him. That was a sacrifice on their part to send Epaphroditus their way. He reminds them of Timothy and the time that they spent with Timothy and Paul when they were just founded and growing as a church. And he reminds them of their own church community. He tells them to be unified, to stop bickering, grumbling, and arguing. He also reminds them, as we've read last week, of the humility of Christ and the glory that He received. And He reminds them that their salvation is, as I've said, to serve a greater purpose than just their own certain eternal destination. 
And then he does something amazing. He sends them back up. And he sends with that backup examples of people who are living this life. So first of all, he says, I'm going to send back Epaphroditus. So I've written this letter. I'm going to give it to Epaphroditus. This Epaphroditus who you sent to me and who risked death to fulfill your ministry to me, I'm going to send him back to you. But I'm not expecting him to come back to me, so I'm going to send Timothy as well. Why am I going to send Timothy and Epaphroditus? Because I want to hear. I want to hear how you are since receiving my letter. I want to know how you responded to the letter when it was read to you. I want to know how you react. I also want to send you another example of somebody who has abandoned his heart to the service of Christ and doesn't seek his own good. And then he says that I will come. So Paul's expecting to be freed, even though earlier he said, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So there's always that possibility that he may end up being executed for what he believes. He's still expecting to be freed. And instead of him thinking, well, when I'm freed, that's going to be a relief. I think I'm going to take, oh, a month off, maybe go to Patmos on holiday. Um, and, you know, just put my feet up. He's not thinking about that. He's thinking about his family. He's thinking about his Christian brothers and sisters, those that he shares an inheritance with. And he says, when I'm freed, I'm coming to you, and I'm going to encourage you to stand up against persecution. And I've got loads of stories to tell. So what does that mean for us? If we're facing temptations, how do we overcome? And I just want you to consider these points. Number one, temptation will come. It will come. It will come every single day. You will be tempted in some way or other every single day of your life. Everyone is tempted, and God allows all of us to be tempted It's in the first few pages of the Bible. Adam and Eve are tempted. Did God really say that you would die? Cain was tempted. The Israelites were tempted in the wilderness to go back to Egypt. And then again, they were tempted to adopt the evil practices of their neighbors. They were tempted to have a king. They were tempted to trade with unscrupulous people to gain wealth They were tempted to extort their own brothers. They were all tempted, and they all gave in. Jesus was tempted by Satan himself in the wilderness. The difference was that Jesus didn't succumb, not even for a moment. At no point do you even hear him weighing up the pros and cons of each temptation. He just goes straight back to Scripture and stands confidently before Satan and walks away without committing any sin in mind or in deed. Even when he went up to the cross, he was tempted. What were the people thinking? Why doesn't he just bring himself down off that cross? If he brought himself down off that cross, then we'd believe 
I mean, all he has to do to prove to us that this guy really is God is pull himself down and walk among us and prove to us that he is God. But that was not God's, his father's will for him. And so he stays there. And he allows his life to be poured out from him. And he surrenders everything for his people. Even then, he doesn't give in to temptation. I'm going to go on to another point, but you've got to understand something, guys. The way that people, God's people, responded in the Old Testament is so different to the way that Jesus responded. And sometimes we can look at the two and go, yeah, we're more like those people from the Old Testament than Jesus ever was. But the Spirit of God is in you. The same power that rose Christ from the dead is in you. You are new creations. You are not like those people. You're a brand new creation made in Jesus Christ. And when you're tempted, the difference between you and them is that you don't need to give in. You don't need to give in. My second point is that being tempted is not sinning. In itself, it's not sinning. You will be tempted every day, and God will allow it. And Paul's encouragement to us is that when temptation comes, you're not to go and cower in a corner and beg it to go away. That's not a Christian response to temptation. Neither is it a Christian response to stand up against temptation directly and fight it off on its own terms. You know, like what happens in a schoolyard. Your mom's ugly. No, she isn't. Yes, she is. No, she isn't. Yes, she is. When I was a younger Christian, I fought temptation like that sometimes. It was like, why does the thought keep coming into my mind? I'm going to confront it head on and tell it to go away. And it comes back again. I have to turn around and say, go away. And it comes back again. And I have to turn around and say, go away. And his encouragement isn't to do either. It's not to be a coward and hide in the corner and pretend that um, temptation can't see you. And it's not to confront it in that way. Instead, his advice for us is to focus on Jesus. To focus on his selfless example of humility. To focus on the example of Timothy, who has abandoned everything to pursue Christ's purposes. To celebrate Epaphroditus, who came close to death in his service to Christ. And to focus on the goal, the prize, of being face to face with Christ one day. To cower or to directly oppose is to distract you from your calling. You may overcome it once or twice. You may beat it there and then. But the bottom line is you've been distracted from your mission. All that time that you've spent fighting with that particular temptation, you could have been doing something productive for Christ. Thirdly, you're empowered to overcome. You are empowered to overcome. And that's the point that I was making earlier. So Paul elsewhere uses the illustrations of an athlete to encourage believers to put away anything that is a distraction from their great goal of serving Christ, his people and those who are being saved. And, and it's a great illustration, um, and in a way it helps me to understand why temptation is allowed to come our way. When true athletes are tempted, 
they persevere. But those who, who aren't true athletes are revealed. And um, I can say this about myself. I sometimes run, but I'm not a runner. I can run for three months straight, but it doesn't take much to distract me from running. And within a week or two, I'm totally, totally over it. It's not like I'm feeling guilty in two weeks' time. I'm not even thinking about running. I couldn't care less about it. The only time that I start thinking again is when maybe I stand on a scale by mistake and I go, ooh, I'm not doing any exercise. Guess I'd better get back out on the road. I'm not a runner. I run sometimes. Stu is a runner. Um, There's a couple of others in in the audience that are are runners. If you want to put your hand up, let me know. Are Are you a runner or are you someone who just sometimes runs? You're a runner, okay, but you've been resisting. You think the bug has bitten. You're a runner now, okay, all right. So if I say anything about runners, tell me if I'm wrong because I'm not a runner, so maybe I've got it wrong. And um, for Stu or, or other runners, even when they are not on the road, they're thinking about it. Even when they're suffering on the road, they find joy in it. Not happiness, joy. There's some kind of sense of fulfillment, which is insane, but, you know, it works for them. It's something that energizes them. Um, the coffee shop is a temptation for all of us, I'm sure, or, or the pub. Um, but, but when Stu is in the coffee shop and when John is in the coffee shop, he's planning his next run. Well, I couldn't care less. I'm just enjoying the drink and the company. And temptation is, is similar for us Christians. It, it can attempt to distract you, but you will remain focused on Christ because that's where you get energy. That's where your joy is. That's where your fulfillment is. And because of that, temptations are just sort of peripheral and you can get on with the, the good thing of following Christ. If you've heard Jesus call to you and have responded and acknowledged him as Lord and accepted his righteousness as your own, you are a true Christian. And when Paul encourages his true brothers and sisters, he is not doing it in the fear that they will fail. He's doing it in great confidence that they will succeed. They will pass the test because they have been empowered to do so. They are not like all of those that we read about in the Old Testament, because they're a new creation. They're born again. No longer with a heart of stone, but with a heart of flesh. They're alive in their spirits and empowered by the Spirit of the living God. Now, if you're not a Christian, you might, you might be able to identify with me as a runner. You go to church sometimes, but when you're not going to church, you don't think about Christ the reason for that is simple, that Christians, Christians aren't just normal people with some kind of genetic predisposition towards religiosity, you know, like, like some atheists would have us believe that there's this genetic trait that makes some more religious than others. It's not a genetic trait. Christianity is, is something that is done spiritually, 
And um, God actually makes you, as a Christian, a brand new person, a totally different kind of person. The nice thing about it is, because it's not genetics, the invitation is open to every one of us. Anybody who chooses to believe that Christ is who he said he is, is able to be a Christian. And um, if you are one of those that look with intrigue at Christians and the way that they live their lives, and you think, maybe I'd like to find out more about that, or, or maybe you think, well, that's great for them, but it's, it's not for me, the promise that Christ gives is for you. I was one of those people that didn't believe and lived my own life and possibly would have taken that magic mushroom in Bali and been found in a hotel room because I was trying to fulfill some hole inside of me that I thought possibly this would do. That was me. I'd heard about Jesus a lot. I'd heard about church a lot. But on one day, when I was listening, something different happened inside of me. And I moved from a position of going, yeah, well, I believe that there is a God, to a position of I believe that Jesus Christ is God. And I don't know why that's happened, but it's happened inside of me right now. And my life changed significantly on that day. And it can for any of you as well. So there's hope. And I'd encourage you not to walk away with that in your mind and your heart, but to talk to someone, talk to a Christian about that. So, uh, worship team, guys, can you come up, please? Um, So really, that's why you can be joyful in temptation. It's not because temptation is something to be enjoyed. It's because it is a test that you can't fail. It is a a test that uh, is there to prove your salvation in a sense. And my encouragement to you as Christians now is to stop obsessing over it and get on with the work of the gospel. Paul doesn't obsess over it. He keeps on reminding them of who they are and who you are. You are like stars in the sky that illuminate the darkness and make it possible for people that have been blinded to find their way to safety. Think about that. Turn away from all the pressures you're under. Let go of the petty squabbles and hold on tight to your brothers and your sisters and shine for all to see. Yep? Okay. With that in mind, let's worship and praise our God who made this all possible. So, Lord Jesus, I just want to thank you that at the end of the day, As we always say at the beginning of our meetings, it's all about you. It's all about you, Jesus. And and pretty much the answer to every question is Jesus. And that's not just because we don't understand the question. It's because we understand that you're not just a key to a fuller or better life. You are a fuller and better life. You are the ultimate prize. And... Salvation in itself is only wonderful because it guarantees that we get to spend eternity in your presence. And so, Lord God, for us as a church, I pray that we will be a people 
that are found to be unified, that we don't let small arguments divide our unity, that we'll be a people that are, are found to be focused um, not on our own selfish needs, but on the needs of the people around us, that we would be people that don't just say we are friends, but we reciprocate. We don't just say that we love, but we give out of love to those around us. And Lord, I pray that we would be a people that don't stand opposed to darkness in a sense of, of, them, of the darkness being our enemy, but we stand in contrast as light that illuminates the darkness. In Jesus' name. Amen.